Very good. Please take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, looking this morning at verses 17 and 18. We step back into 1 Timothy after our Thanksgiving interlude last week. Spent time in the Psalms last week, Psalm 103 and Psalm 118. Remember before the break, we were considering a context uh, which began in 1 Timothy 5 verses 1 and 2 where the Bible said this, Rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, and the younger as, excuse me, the younger as sisters with all purity. We find that the call here is to comfort or to entreat one another in all purity. That we're called, and this is where we went with our application during that message, we are called effectively to treat one another like family. That the church is intended to be a place of love. It's intended to be a place of submission, of safety, and of honor one to another. And that if this is not your experience with church, then there's something wrong. It's either something wrong with you as it relates to your church, or there's something wrong with your church as it relates to you. Because this is how church is supposed to be. This is what church is supposed to look like. That concept then continued into a direct line of application uh, in verses 3 through 16 as it related specifically to this personal support idea of the family of God. Paul enumerates when the church supporting a, a person is appropriate And specifically, he gave that within the context of widows. And those widows who should be supported were called widows indeed. And Paul went through a process of of delineating what would make a widow a widow indeed. And specifically, it had to do with their, their family either being unwilling or unable to help them with support. And them being godly people who have invested in the church, who intend to continue to invest, who are willing to place themselves under the care of the church, to devote themselves to um, to Christ and to the church. And in doing so, that subset of, of women having a good testimony and, and, and needing to be cared for would be cared for by the church, being called widows indeed. And Paul calls for the church to honor them. All other widows, if they're younger, they should remarry. If their family is able to take care of them, their family should do so. Now this week, we continue in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, and Paul is still talking about elements surrounding the church. He's talked about uh, the manner of treating one another's family. He's talked about a subset of that, of caring for widows who are widows indeed. And of course, we took that and we broadened that to all sorts of, of applications and manner of church support. And in 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, Paul turns his attention toward the ruling Elders. So we read in these two verses, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. So we step into our context with a direct focus upon those who are called elders. Now remember that this word is used in various ways throughout the scriptures. At the beginning of this chapter, we see it used to speak perhaps most specifically of simply elderly men as contrasted with elderly women, young men, and young women, right? We saw that in verses 1 and 2. The clear and obvious focus is upon their time of life and the respect and the honor that is due to them for that. 
just as we would uh, then see a call to honor the widow indeed with the unique care that is due unto her. And even that was given within a certain context, a certain time of life, namely, as Paul said, those widows who are over 60 years old. Here we find Paul speak of elders again, but this time we see a, a specificity to the way he's speaking of elders that helps us understand that he's reorienting our context. Remember how I've told you that when you're, when you're interpreting the Word of God, uh, especially if, if we're dealing with an epistle, right? If Paul is writing, and we're going to see this come up again next week, Paul is writing an epistle and he defines a word a certain way. And he uses that word more ambiguously later on in his letter Unless he redefines his usage of the word, there's no reason to believe he's not using it in the same way. We should assume that he's using the word in the same way that he's using it otherwise. So we've seen Paul use the word elder previously in the book, and we interpreted it in a manner of speaking to speak toward teachers. And then we get to verse uh, 1 and 2 of chapter 5, and we see specifically the way Paul uses that word in context to speak toward the idea simply of someone who is advanced in age or at a latter point in their life. And now we see Paul reorient the context again, and he redefines the word a little bit to help us understand the context within which we're dealing with here. Not just all elders, but specifically elders that rule, and in this case, that rule well. This directs us back to that teaching we did at the beginning of our consideration regarding the nature of ministry in chapter 3. Recall we spent some time walking through the Bible's teaching as it relates to leaders within the church. And we spoke of a number of words that the Bible used to reference functional leadership within the church. The Bible uses the word apostle. The Bible uses the word prophet, evangelist, pastor and teacher, bishop, elder, and deacon. And we see all of these words speaking towards some measure of leadership or some measure of function within the church. And we discussed how apostles and prophets are presented in Ephesians and that within the context, they speak not to the functional framework of the church, but rather to the foundation of the church, both through their presence in the early church and as those who God had chosen to pen the scriptures. So the apostles and prophets, as those who God had chosen to pen the word of God, Thus, this book, even Jesus called this book, uh, uh, he, he said, what saith the prophets, right? And we see the apostles having written the New Testament, the prophets having written the Old Testament. And to that extent, when we see Ephesians say that the, the, that the church is founded, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, we recognize first off that it was the testimony and the teaching and the leadership of the apostles and prophets. And we see, secondly, that it is their continued legacy as rooted in the Word of God that is the foundation of the church. To that end, we do not recognize apostles and prophets as continuing ministry functions today. Now, we might talk about the spiritual gift of prophecy and talk about how that differs from what is being spoken of here as prophets within the church. But we do not find apostles and prophets as ministry functions that continue into the New Testament age. They are the foundation of the church upon which the church is built. Then we discussed evangelists, and we discussed how evangelists are a function of the church that is not necessarily given any authority in the local church, but is rather rooted in those who have been gifted with sharing the gospel, both with clarity and with power. And the evangelist has been gifted and ordained by God to take the gospel 
and to, to go with it. Whether we talk about the modern day evangelist who goes to churches or whether we talk about the, the missionary who goes to the uttermost parts of the world and plants churches there, we see this idea of the evangelist as one who has been gifted with sharing the gospel. And then we discuss the pastor and teacher. And we said that this is one office. The text, the Greek text particularly, seems to make it quite clear. The King James would affirm this and how they translated it. That pastor-teacher is one office. The pastor-teacher. And that this office is the same as the bishop and the elder in the scriptures. And we went to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 to defend that assertion that pastor-teacher, elder, and bishop all reference the same office. It's not three different offices. It's the same office in the scriptures. And what we find in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, is that Peter commands the elders of the church to do two things. First, to take oversight, and that is the word bishop in the scripture, and to feed the flock, and that's the word pastor in the scriptures. So the elder in 1 Peter 5 verses 1 and 2 is commanded by God to bishop the flock and to pastor the flock. The elders, bishop and pastor, right? They oversee the flock and they feed the flock of God. And of course, the feeding would be a teaching ministry in the church. And so we found that pastor, bishop, elder used interchangeably within the scriptures, all describing the same functional authority and office within the church. We then took that back, if you recall, to 1 Timothy 3, where we find the two offices that Paul speaks of as it relates to the local church. And the first being the bishop, which is the elder, which is the pastor, and then the deacon. And we spoke about the deacon. And the deacon, of course, was uh, they were to the minister to the ministers. Right? They were there to take things off of the plate of the minister of God so the minister of God could devote himself to the study of the word of God and to prayer. And the deacons would go and they would do some of the other um, elements of the ministry, visiting, uh, meeting the needs of, of those who had needs and of such. So when we come here to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, we see that Paul is not simply speaking of elders, like people later on in life, but specifically elders that rule. And by seeing that these are ruling elders, we would put our context squarely here within the camp of those who are, who are ordained by the church, who have been recognized by the church, who are aligned with the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3, who have been identified and affirmed by the church as such, and who are thus in a position where they are leading the church. It is though, it's, it's that subset of elders, the elder, pastor, bishop, that we're speaking of that our context specifically denotes here. And notice also that it speaks not simply of all of the elders that rule, but specifically of the elders that rule well. Not that they are perfect, but that they do a good job at performing the duties unto which they have been called. And again, we don't speak of this in a nebulous concept. It is not necessarily your prerogative or my prerogative to subjectively decide whether or not an elder, pastor, bishop will probably... I'll probably get to the word pastor here and, and use that because that's a little bit more familiar to us. Whether or not a pastor is doing a good job. We don't judge whether a pastor has ruled well based upon our own whims or on our feelings about him or on whether or not we agree on everything or whether or not we get along, but rather we judge on the objective standard of 
what the scriptures present as to what it means that an, a pastor, an elder, a bishop rules well. We've seen it defined already several times in this epistle. We see it in other epistles as well. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, Paul writes, This charge I and commit unto thee, son Timothy. So Paul is making a charge to Timothy as a, as a, a leader in the church. According to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So we see this charge unto Timothy that he would war a good warfare, that he would hold the faith in a good conscience. This is something that a good pastor does. He wars a good warfare. He holds on to the faith in good conscience. We also, of course, see the qualifications as we've referenced already in 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must have a good report of them that are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So we see all of these elements of the qualifications of a pastor. Is he ruling well? Does he align himself with the elements of the qualifications of a pastor? We also saw it in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 of 1 Timothy. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine whereunto thou hast attained. And so we see another element what does it mean to be a good minister of Jesus Christ? Paul says, keep the brethren in remembrance of these things. Keep the brethren in remembrance of these last days. Keep the brethren in remembrance of the danger that is to come. Help them stay pure. Help them stay right. Help them keep their head on straight. Give them an anchor that keeps them from drifting in this world. We continue in verses 13 through 16 of 1 Timothy 4. Till I come... Give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Once again, we see a charge unto a minister that he give attendance to reading and to exhortation and to doctrine that he continue to profit, he continue to grow, that his profiting may be seen unto all, that he would take heed to himself and to doctrine. This is what a good minister does. We see in 2 Timothy, verses, uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul says to Timothy again, Hold fast that form of sound doctrine which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed unto thee 
keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. A good minister is holding fast to sound doctrine, holding fast to the Word of God, holding fast to those sound words in faith and in love which is in Christ Jesus, exhibiting the, these elements of, of sound doctrine in faith and exhibiting these elements of sound doctrine in love. That makes a good minister of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 2, verses 14 through 18, of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as, as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrown the faith of some. Once again, we see Paul charge Timothy to put them in remembrance that they don't strive about things that don't have a profit, to stop nitpicking everything, to, uh, to, to not get into, as we'd see in 1 Timothy, the genealogies and, uh, and into the elements of the scriptures that, that have no practical profit in sound doctrine or in a proper understanding of the gospel or anything of the sort. Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine, just as before, where uh, Paul called Timothy to approach sound doctrine with faith and with with uh, love. Here we see Paul call Timothy to approach the word with sound doctrine and with long suffering. This is a good minister. We see Paul exhort Titus as well about these things in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behaviors, becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obe good obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. Once again, we see an exhortation to Titus that he teach the church these things. Titus 3, verses 1 and 2. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready unto every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. These are things that, the, that, that a, a approved, affirmed minister ought to be teaching. Teaching submission, teaching subjection, teaching obedience, teaching peace, teaching kindness, teaching long-suffering, teaching a readiness unto good works. Give you one more exhortation just to round this out. We already talked in 1 Peter 5. We alluded to it. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 3. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. 
neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. I apologize, it cut off that last word there. There is no lack of insight in the word of God regarding the call that is upon the lives of ministers. There is no lack of insight regarding what a minister is supposed to be, what a minister is supposed to focus on, what a minister is not supposed to focus on, and what a minister is supposed to be doing with his time and with his effort. They are to teach and to exemplify sound doctrine. They're to lead their homes and their churches into godliness. They're to be faithful, consistent, careful, to lead by example, not by compulsion. They're not to be dictator pastors. They're not to have their own little kingdom in the church. They are to lead others unto Christ. They are to teach with clarity, unashamed, and approved in study. This constitutes what the scriptures speak of as they call ministers. And Paul says that if an elder is ruling well, that this man is worthy of a double honor in the assembly. Now take note of what it doesn't say. It does not say that he's entitled to a double honor. It does not say that he can expect or demand a double honor. It simply says he's worthy of it, that he deserves it. And especially, Paul says, those ruling elders who labor in the word and in doctrine, those who are apt to teach and approved teachers among you. Now, as with widows, so too we must ask here, what, do, what is this honor? What does it mean to honor a widow that's a widow indeed? What does it mean to honor one another? What does it mean to give a double honor to the elders that rule well? Now, with a widow indeed, the idea of honoring her was to treat her well and specifically, as we see it, to care for her, to care for her physically. With the king, when it says to honor the king, that is the idea of respecting his authority through submission. For parents, when it says to honor their parents, children, honor your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The idea is submission to authority. With one another in the church, to honor one another is to have watchful care and service, to hold each other accountable, to pray with one another, for one another, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to bear one another's burdens, and so to fulfill the law of Christ. So then the question becomes, what does it mean to honor a ruler, an elder, excuse me, who rules well? What is this idea of honor? And it's a good question. We could have any number of answers. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to follow a trail of spiritual principles. And that trail of spiritual principles, I think, is going to lead us to an end which uh, is careful and which I, I believe is, is the best answer to this question. Um, though some would disagree with me. So what we find in Scripture, number one, just to lay down a foundation, we do find quite clearly that there is, a, that there is an expectation that the church care for the material needs of the ministers that are in their midst, right? This is not a controversial thing, and this is not my attempt to be self-serving. This is what the Bible says. So let's take a look at where this is coming from. In verses 17 and 18... Uh, we see Paul cite two scriptural concepts, specifically verse 18. He cites two scriptural contexts. The first is found in Leviticus 19.13, and the second is found in Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And they read respectively this. Leviticus 19.13 says, Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. 
And then in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, God commands, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox when he treadeth out the corn. These two verses espouse a singular concept. The first verse commands Israel that the man who works is worthy to receive the just wages for his work. So much so that God says, don't even withhold your wages overnight. If he works for a day, you give him the wages that he earns at the end of that day. Now remember, this is a principle. This doesn't mean that any business that's not paying their person by the day is doing wrong, right? But the principle is you don't defraud a man that which he needs. He did the work. You give him the, the, the compensation for his work. Treat him properly. Treat him right. The second verse states a very similar concept, that the ox who is plowing the field has the right to eat the gleanings of his own labor. So the ox should not be muzzled as he treads the corn, as he plows. He should be allowed to eat of the corn that he's plowing. And this naturally can be extended to everything by principle. Paul even says in the New Testament, do you think God was only speaking of oxes? Do you think, do you think oxes were the only thing that God had in mind when he was giving that? Well, no. No, it wasn't. Instead, the principle here is that if a man labors, he has the right to benefit directly from the fruit of his labor, whether that be the right to use what he's made or the right to be compensated for the labor that was used to build it. And by the way, this is why when we talk about the elements today, the tremendous political controversy surrounding socialism and communism, even if they did work, they are inherently immoral. They are inherently, socialism and communism is inherently immoral, inherently unbiblical because the philosophy espouses that your labor does not go unto your direct benefit, that your labor goes to the benefit of the state who will then confer upon you its good graces as it sees fit. That is inherently unbiblical and inherently immoral based upon the principles that we find here that a man, that, that the laborer is worthy of his hire, that you don't tread that you don't muzzle the ox that treads out the corn. You allow a man or a beast or anything else to be a direct recipient of, uh, of his own labor. He has the right to that. He has the right to his own wages for his own labor. My labor is not an extension of the state. The state does not have the right to my labor. It's, it, it's my right. And then I have the right to do with it what I see fit. And that's the principle as we see it here. So this concept is used in regard to spiritual ministry several times in the New Testament. And it begins with Jesus' teaching as he commissioned his disciples to go and to preach the gospel in Luke chapter 10, verses 2 through 7. The Bible says, Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse, nor script, nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give. 
for the laborers worthy of his hire go not from house to house. So we find uh, a parallel to this in Matthew 10 as well. This is the first time Jesus commissions his disciples to go and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And as he does so, he commands them not to bring any provision for the way. And he instead compels them to find people in the cities into which they would go and to get provision from them. And if there was not anyone to give provision to the ministers, that they should take their spiritual ministry elsewhere. But if there, there were those who were willing to provide, then they should remain there and minister without any fit of conscience or any fit of concern, living off of the, the generosity of those who would be willing to have them there because the laborer is worthy of his hire. So this is the first time we see this concept mentions uh, of, of physical care being mentioned directly as it relates to ministers. Speaking about physical provision, food and drink and a place to stay. Notice this is not luxury. Notice Jesus did not say, if they don't give you a Mercedes to drive, then take your ministry elsewhere, right? He said, if they give you a place to stay and some food, then stay there for the laborers worthy of his hire. He's simply stating that the laborers in the gospel entitle them to support at the hand of those who are blessed by their ministry. Now we see this used again in 1 Corinthians 9 as Paul defends himself against those who falsely accused him of selfishness and wrongdoing in ministry. Paul is defending himself and he says in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 3 through 14, Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles? And as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas, so he says, do we not have the right to, ha to, to have stuff to eat and to drink, to live? Do we not have the right to get married? Like, like Cephas, Peter, Peter was married. We know Peter was married. Do, do we not have the right to do these things? Or I only am Barnabas. Have not we the power to forbear working? Don't we have the right to not do a secular job and only to devote ourselves to ministry? Who goeth to warfare at any time of his own charges? No, no, no soldier goes to war just because he loves his country without any thought of remuneration. Who planteth a vineyard and eateth not of the fruit thereof? No man plants a vineyard without thinking that one day he's going to be able to enjoy the fruit of that vineyard. He's not going to put all that effort in if, he does, if it's just going to be taken away from him. Who feedeth a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things also as a man, or say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also. Here he invokes Deuteronomy. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for the oxen? Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? That he that ploweth should plow, uh, excuse me, uh, no, for our sakes no doubt this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be a partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel." Once again, we find that Paul references these concepts in verse 9 to show that ministers have a right, a divine right to receive provision for their physical needs 
from the abundance of those who benefit from their ministry. Do note that Paul is saying this to them as a means of highlighting the fact that though he had this right, he was not exercising this right about them. So it is not a demand. If I said, I don't need your money, I'm fine, you don't need to give me a salary, it's not a demand that then you do give me one anyway. Paul said, I refused it, and that's fine. He had the right to do that as well. But he had the right to receive it. In fact, what we find in 2 Corinthians is that Paul was not just wholesale refusing support from, from, from God's people. Paul specifically says in 2 Corinthians that he was, he was not asking the Corinthians for support, but he said he was robbing from other churches. He, was, he, he had churches, we know specifically the church of Philippi, was sending him money so that he could continue his work while he was ministering to Corinth, but not asking any of the Corinthians for money, specifically because he thought, due to the nature of the culture there in Corinth, that it would, it would be a hindrance to the gospel ministry if they, were, if they had some compulsion to support him. Why exactly that is, we don't know. We know that the Corinthians were a fairly wealthy people, so perhaps it was a nature, maybe they'd had a lot of charlatans come through and ask them for money. And so Paul knew if I ask them for money, it's going to destroy my testimony among these people. They're going to say, oh, you're just another one of those guys that wants money. So he didn't ask them for money. And instead, of course, we know he was a tent maker. And then he says in 2 Corinthians, he robbed other churches. He, he had other churches send him money specifically so that he did not have to ask for money from the Corinthians. So it's not that a, uh, that a minister is required to take a salary or that the church is required to offer one, but that a man who invests his time in the spiritual lives of others is entitled to receive remuneration for his efforts, even in this life. One more passage that reflects this, and then I want to kind of help tie this to, to, to what we see here. Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Once again, we find Paul call upon those who are taught to communicate. Now, when we think of the word communicate today, we think of the idea of speaking. But the word communicate uh, really doesn't mean just talking, right? It means how we deport ourselves. It means how we carry ourselves. It means how we act. So for those who are taught in the word to communicate toward those who teach in all good things means to act towards those who teach in a manner that is, that is right, that is good in relation to how they have taught you in relation to the amount that, that you have benefited from them. Those who are taught ought to honor those who teach. Now carry this into 1 Timothy 5. We cannot help but see that there are some links that the Scripture makes to ministers and to material provision. With the exception of the Galatians passage, which simply says all good things, the rest speak directly to ministers being cared for financially. But I don't think that is what Paul is saying here. I don't think that is what Paul is speaking toward here directly. And that is because of a very important context within which Paul speaks toward ministers and physical care. 
ministers and physical compensation. There's no doubt that when Paul calls for the church to honor the man of God, there's some subset of material provision that's implied there. But the double honor idea, it doesn't really make sense as it relates to material provision. See, we can say without question that the man of God should not be a man that is inundated with material things, right? That the man of God is not a man who should be full of wealth and of material possessions. And we'll see this as we get into 1 Timothy 6. We'll spend a little bit more time there. God has specifically told the minister to flee from the love of money and the desire to be rich. Paul will command Timothy, and we're memorizing it this month, 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 11, we're memorizing 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into, into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith, pierced themselves through with many sorrows." But thou, O man of God, specifically to this minister he's writing, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. The minister of God is called to flee from, not from money, not from money, but from the love of money, right? There's a big difference between having money and loving money. There's a big difference between money and loving money. The Bible never says money is the root of all evil. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. It's not a problem if you have money. The problem is when money has you. The problem is when money is what you live for. Money is what you dedicate yourself to. When money, when, when you bend, when you, when you flex, when you change because you want money, when you compromise for money, when you seek money at the expense of other things, particularly at the, at the expense of things that are more important, at the expense of family, at the expense of your time unto ministry, at the expense unto those things that God would call you unto. So Paul calls Timothy to be godly in the, within the context of contentment. To be content, he says, having carried nothing into this world and knowing you're going to carry nothing out of this world, it is enough if you have provision. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. It's enough if you have a roof over your head, if you have clothes on your back, and if you have food on your table. Let that be enough for you. And it is this concept which causes me to pause as it relates to the exhortation of double honor and any sort of a material idea. How can you give a double honor materially to one if food and raiment are supposed to be, you just give them double food and double raiment? That doesn't make any sense, right? Doesn't make any sense. Materially, the minister is supposed to be content with such things that he has, content as he has enough to live on. The church is to honor him, is to bless him, is to make sure he's cared for, is to love him and provide for him materially as, as the call is, is there. But the idea of a double honor doesn't really equate well into the doctrinal context of the minister's physical or material compensation because he's supposed to be content with enough. But what if we connected the double honor for the elders that rule well, 
not to their performance like we would a business evaluation, where if a person performs well, they receive more money or benefits or raise or whatever. What if instead we connected the double honor to the elders that rule well, as it were, to the fruit of their performance, not the performance itself, but to the fruit of it? Remember, we walked through all of those things that a good minister would do well. He would teach sound doctrine. He would remind his people of coming apostasy. He would exhort men and women in the church unto godliness and virtue, unto a, a loving and appreciating the role that God has given them. He would ground God's people in the scriptures. He would lead not unto filthy lucre, or not for filthy lucre's sake, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but as being an example to the flock. And if you have a person that is this way, not a perfect man, nobody is, not a sinless man, nobody is. Not a man in whom you agree on everything with him, you're not going to. Not a man who never makes a mistake, not a man who is flawless. But if you have a man who is faithful to the things that the scripture calls, if you have a faithful, called man of God leading you, or a faithful or called group of men leading you, then you have something that is worth respecting, honoring, being thankful for. They are worth honoring. It's worth honoring their time. It's worth honoring their opinion. It's worth honoring their wisdom and their insight. It's worth honoring their efforts and their ministry. And this is what I think we find here. When, we, when, when Paul speaks of a double honor, I don't think it's speaking simply of material remuneration. I think it's speaking about the mindset that you have as it relates to the ministers that are among you. See, familiarity breeds contempt, doesn't it? Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. The more you get to know me, it's quite possible the, the, the more you're going to see my flaws and the less you're going to want to put me on some sort of pedestal. At first you may come in and say, wow, you know, Pastor Wickler, this, that, and, and you may be comparing me to someone else and seeing some of the areas where God has gifted me and saying, wow, this is special. And then you get to know me and you say, yeah, but what about this about him and that about him? And he's got a problem here and he's got a problem there common, common, to be, un, to be expected, to be understood. You never realize how, uh, the, when, when, you're, when you're close to people, sometimes because you see their flaws, you kind of forget about all of their virtues. But what I think Paul is saying here is that if you found a faithful minister, a good spiritual teacher and leader, a man or men who rule well, who perform their calling with faithfulness and with skill, you need to be thankful because these types of men are not everywhere. So while the definitive call upon the church to materially care for the ministers of the gospel in their midst is clear and obvious throughout the scriptures, within this passage, I believe there's something else going on. And I might be wrong by this. I've been wrong before. I'll be wrong again. And you certainly have every right not to agree with me. But I believe the point is this. If you found a leader who is faithful to the scriptures, under whom you are learning and growing in all the ways that God has called a minister to teach, you are blessed. You're blessed. The point is not that this man is something special. The point is that you have something special. The point is not that this man is entitled to something from you. The point is that when you find a good spiritual teacher and leader, you would do well to do your best to keep him around.
and to keep him well because they aren't everywhere and they provide something unique and blessed which you would not otherwise have. And if you have found one of these ministers, you should honor him, not by giving him a bunch of money, but give him regard, respect. When he comes up to you in love and re rebukes you or says something needs to, you need to think about changing something or, 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 or he gives you his opinion, respect it. You don't always have to agree with it, but respect it. God has put this person into your life. This man is doing a job and he's doing it generally well. And it's not an easy thing, ministry. If the man is a faithful minister, if he, has, if he is a faithful minister, may I put it this way, he's earned the right to be taken seriously when he speaks to you. Give him your ear. Take what he says to heart. Don't be dismissive of him. Give him the benefit of the doubt when you hear something with which you might not immediately agree. If you found a good teacher, it would behoove you to try to keep him around. Guard him against discouragement, which might lead him to fatigue and burnout. Guard his time so that he can rest, so that he can take time with his family. It does not honor the minister of God to wring him dry like a sponge. It does not honor the minister of God to compel him to labor within an inch of his life for the good of the ministry. Well, that's what we pay him for. You may be paying him, but you're not honoring him. No minister is perfect. No church is perfect. But if the minister is a man who is biblically faithful, whether you agree with him on everything or not, give him honor. Give him some credit. Don't nitpick him to death. Don't run him into the ground. Take care of him physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Even if he doesn't think he needs it, help him stay well because he does. This would honor him. And this, I believe, is the scriptural principle that is espoused here. That within this passage, which exhorts God's people to entreat one another as family, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, to live in a structure of respect, safety, and security, that God's people would see the value that a good minister affords to a church. And in a world, world that is full of self-proclaimed ministers who fail daily at the basic call and requirements of the ministry and its obligations as related to the Word of God, they're in it for any uh, number of reasons. Maybe they're novices and they have no idea what they're doing. Maybe they're in it for the filthy lucre and they're simply seeking to get that money or that honor or that, that position or, or, or they're only here so that they can move up to the next step later. In a world of those, if you find a minister who is faithful, honor him. Even if he ends up not being your minister, even if you end up moving to another church or being at a different church, submitting to the ministry of other ruling elders. If there is an elder in a neighboring church and he's serving well and he's being faithful, honor that. And this is the idea. I believe that those elders who rule well are worthy of this double honor and especially to those who labor in word and in doctrine. And as Paul said in Galatians 6, when we sow into faithful ministers this honor, 
you can be sure that you will reap the spiritual benefits of those actions through the life of that minister. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.